Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis might be more fascist than Donald Trump and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war soon, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it shows just because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away or you automatically were like, yeah, we were wrong. Hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snap Up, where each week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done as society because they were non-Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snap Book, don't be surprised when we start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway. Back in the good old days, you could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now, that's not the case. So we're going to sit there, we're going to back on these kids. We're going to sit there and say, you're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars of debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty dollars or $30,000 they borrow. They might pay two or $300,000 in their lifetime with all the competitive interest. Now here are your hackers of the week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Welcome back into the Snaphook Podcast. Tim Costello, Scott Barzilla coming at you on El Dia de Muerto as we had to push back one day to help accommodate those trick-or-treaters, Scott. Well, you know, I have to tell you, you know, I, I actually it occurred to me I think either Sunday or Monday night. I can't remember which one it was, but uh, you've got the 10-year-old at home. That's, you know, really prime time Halloween season. And you really want to enjoy those moments while they last because, you know, mine's almost 17 and she didn't even make it back for Halloween and didn't seem to care all that much. So enjoy those moments while you can. Do you think she would have trick-or-treated with you if she was there? She would have trick-or-treated. I don't know if she would have done it with us. I think she probably would have done it with friends. Uh, she's made the mistake of you know, going over to Bay Oaks, which for those of y'all who are not in Texas, that is the rich people neighborhood that is you know, the million-dollar-plus homes. And, and Anne seems to think that they're going to give away whole candy bars. It's like I know, got whole candy bars in that neighborhood. I cleaned like, up in that neighborhood, Scott. Well, the thing is, those people now, I don't think the people are living there now. They didn't get there by giving away candy bars. They give them away by saving all of their pennies to pay for the mortgage and not, you know, for the extra for candy there. Yeah, different times. But, man, I cleaned up in that neighborhood, Scott. Some people can get away king size. I I got, uh, you know, time or two every now and then you get like the four pack of Reese's. Oh, man. Oh, my goodness. that 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 is something. Yeah, I, I think uh, we've we pretty much decided that Reese's is the penultimate Absolutely. in our house. In our house, and and I, and and really, what comes in second? That's where the debate rolls in. So if we we set aside Reese's as the penultimate, what is your second place candy? Uh, so tough, but I am going. I need something fruity to go with my Reese's, so I'm going to take. Are we talking just Halloween candy? Or are we talking all candy? I mean, this is 
Just your go-to candy. We'll, we'll take Halloween out of the conversation. Okay, if I'm going my go-to candy, it's the Starburst jelly beans. You know, that's actually that's interesting. You know, um, uh, Janet, she went with Kit Kat, which you know is, is a strong is a strong category, a strong you know finisher. But to me, I've I've actually been a big Three Musketeers fan my whole life. Oh, so, I love them. Um, so I, I don't know. She she wasn't a big Three Musketeers fan, so you know that's kind of a separation. She probably likes a little bit more of a crunch. You know, that's the Three Probably. Musketeers is so light and airy and delightful, quite frankly. But it's, you know, if you're if, if you're a Kit Kat, think of the difference in, in texture, you know, between the Three Musketeer to the Kit Kat, you know? Well, she's not a Nougat fan, which is, you know, I think the key with the Three Musketeers. And, and, and I've kind of put, you know, if you wanted that combination, I think Twix has got to be up there pretty, pretty high. You know what I just what did I just had a little fun size of that I hadn't had in years that was just absolutely delightful. What is that? Baby Ruth. You know, yeah, those are pretty good. You know, I think mm-hmm. like my my like like my bottom tier, and I've never understood the appeal of these. And it's probably you know my diabetes coming through here, probably even before I was diagnosed. Is I am not a fan of the candy corn. Oh, absolutely not. That, Disgusting. Pretty, Disgusting. Pretty, pretty low. That like the, cir- <laughs> the circus peanuts are also pretty low on, on the uh, on the totem pole there. I, I don't like the pure sugar. I, I don't like a pure sugar rest. I need something somewhat savory in there to you know to hit the palate. To me, Scott and I, I'd, I'd love to consider myself a candy connoisseur. Like I really do think I know way more about candy than the average American does. I know about like the history of different candies because I found it so fascinating how just candy developed based on the regionality because you couldn't transport chocolate because it would melt. And so just I learned so much about candy. And so I am a believer that there is a different candy bar for different situations. To me... There's no better on golf course snack than a Snickers. It's delightful. It's sweet. It's savory with the peanuts. You've got the caramel. But you know what? It's hearty enough to give you a little something for that back nine. Late night after dinner, is there anything better than pulling chilled Reese's cups out of the fridge, right? That's what you're looking for. But now you're watching TV a couple hours later. You don't want chocolate anymore. You want something a little fruity. That's when you have the jelly beans mixed in, ready to go. Because these are all different occasions calling for different flavors and different candies. I'm with you on the Snickers, definitely on the golf course. Because, you know, the thing is, is that those peanuts are the ones that have that that protein, you know, which is going to, you know, sustain you a little bit longer. need that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I'm a big fan. Like, like, there's nothing better than a Reese's Blizzard, you know, from Dairy Queen. You know, I, I'm I'm pretty high on that. I get the snack size because you know I can't have too much of that stuff. But it, you know, it's a good end of the week kind of treat. Um, I'm not a big jelly bean fan, um, but what I will say is, you know, Janet has kind of turned me on to. Um, she likes the specialty chocolates that actually have cocoa in them. Uh, you can usually get them at Specs, and they're like between 70 and 90% pure chocolate. 
so they have a little bit more of a savory flavor to them but it's a purer form of chocolate um so those are those are pretty good in, in moderation um i have to say so myself so scott i i gotta be honest i eat too much candy when i have it to buy specialty candy right like I'm I'm like we'll call it like Frank the Tank from old school where he's like once it, once it hits the lips it's so good I can't stop sometimes so if if I'm going to Specs to buy specialty candy like we're, we're crossing a threshold into a legit problem at that point you know I'm I've been known to clean up at the half price Halloween the next day aisle you know November first is a great day to load up on candy but you're just limited on the crap that no one wanted to give out to kids, right? You know, sometimes you get lucky. And also, like, everybody knows I like Reese's, so everybody gives me Reese's. And that's why every now and then I just want a little something different. And I I love jelly beans. I've always – my mom is a big jelly belly person, so I always, like, grew up eating jelly beans. And then I found the Starburst jelly beans, and they are the Starburst flavors in jelly bean form. And they are just – freaking awesome man because like sometimes starburst like gets stuck in your teeth and stuff like that and it just i love jelly beans i love the texture i love the, the burst of flavor when you bite into them got the starburst ones if you haven't tried them if you like jelly beans folks starburst flavored jelly beans yeah so where, where i'm at these days is i when i go to the supermarket i go every monday morning and basically i buy like my week supplies at that point and so like i buy my little microwave like lunch kits and i need something sweet afterwards and so what i've gotten is i've gotten the werther werther's originals and i don't know if you've ever had those these are like grandma candy uh, but they come in sugar-free which you know for which me, is why so many old ladies have them well i I'm diabetic to them. You know, I, I got, understand I got, that, Scott. <laughs> I got to, you know, so it's something I can have that's sweet, you know, at the, at the workplace. And, you know, and I usually get some crackers that have a little bit of, you know, of your, um, of your protein, you know, that kind of sustain you through. So it, it's a little bit of a hodgepodge. It's, it's basically a cheap way to go through the week. And, but I think, you know, we, we've, we've hit the candy thing, you know, a bit long enough. And I, I think, uh, I would hate to call this an astrocentric podcast because I, you know, I think we we discuss a diverse, you know, area of you know Houston college sports and golf and things like that. But we are kind of an astrocentric podcast, and so the Astros are embarking on their managerial search. So, wanted to open up the open up the shot here for you. Do you have a favorite in the batter's box for that job? I think, I mean, I'd love to see it be Joe Espada, right? Um, a guy who's who's been there since the beginning of this run, who has, you know, the ability to connect with the players. He's young enough that um, he can still understand what guys are going through. He's a former big leaguer, but he's been there long enough and been respected as a coach to be able to command authority in that locker room. And, you know, to me, Scott... At what point do you do you give that guy a look? Because if it's if it's not now, it's never. Because somebody out there is going to grab him. I think he's hung around. He he understood why it couldn't be him during the scandal. Waited his time. I feel like he's turned down opportunities elsewhere to stay here, thinking that this would be his job. 
And nothing's ever promised, but you know what? Like, I at least think he needs to be one of your final candidates. If someone comes in and they and they wow you the way that Jeff Lunau did uh, when he came in for his interview, hey, man, I get it. But if you come at me with, like, Walt Weiss or some other Braves guy that we're going to bring over here, like, it's just hard for me to be excited about that because, like, number one, I don't, like, have the same love for Walt Weiss that, like, a Braves fan would. But, like, also number two, I just feel like at what point do you give your guy a shot, right? Like, he has paid his dues. I I get that this guy wants his own coach, but – or manager, but – um. You know, at what point do you promote from within and say, hey, you earned it? I'm with you in terms of, like, if it were my pick, who it would be. But I am a big process guy. And this is where I've, I've been following, you know, Astros Twitter, so to speak. And they're, they have been so anti-Brad Osmus. Like, they even said, like, hey somebody who picks Brad Osmus as their favorite, they need to be investigated by the FBI. And it's like, wow, you're going there. So to me, this is where I'm, this is where I'm calling my shot. And this is basically what I'm saying. I am a process guy. What I want is Dana Brown and Jim Crane together to come out and sit there and say, this is our guy, whoever that is. If it's Jim Crane going into a smoke filled room with Jeff Bagwell and Reggie Jackson, if they come out with the reincarnation of John McGraw, I'm still, I'm calling bullshit because at this point I like Jeff Bagwell. I loved him as a player. He was my favorite Astro probably to this day, probably still my favorite Astro as a player. As much as I love Jose Altuve, I loved Jeff Bagwell as a player. And so it pains me to sit there and say this, but the guy is not management material. We saw what he did last offseason. We saw the decisions that he made when Jim Crane put him, you know, basically in front of the whole organization saying, this is our guy before, you know, giving Dana Brown the call. And you remember, this is the guy that gave Rafael Montero an extension, uh, which we agreed at the time was stupid. This is the guy that signed to Jose Abreu. We agreed at the time we liked that move, but it turned out, you know, is questionable. We're not going to give up on it, but it was questionable. And, you know, this is a guy, you know, trying to think, you know, yeah, Michael Brantley, that was on him too. That was before, you know, Dana Brown came on board. So three moves and two of them, I think we could completely pan. And one of them. I'll be, I was happy about Brantley. I thought Brantley would, would play though. I didn't, everything from it was, He'll be back early, you know, early May, June time period, right? Like, I think the the problem was they didn't do their due diligence on that injury. Well, and, and so my fear is, is that if they come out with Brad Osmus as the manager, and it's because it's Bagwell and Jackson saying, we want Brad Osmus, that is the exact wrong decision to make because of the process. To me, it has to be somebody that Dan Brown says, this is my guy. This is somebody who I think can, number one, relate to the players well. But number two, is going to use my roster the way it's designed to be used. 
because Dana Brown, you're charging him with going out and finding the best 26 guys that he can find. And, and realistically, you're charging him with finding about 30 to 35 guys because you need a stable in AAA that can be there when injuries happen. You know, that that's just the way the baseball works these days. And so if you're charging Dana Brown with that, you got to give him a guy that he can at least work with that could be somebody who sit there and say, you know what, you know, for instance, Yanir Diaz is our best catcher. He needs to be catching at least 100 ball games. We got to do that moving forward. Okay. You know, you could, you know, Martin Maldonado is a guy that I think I would love to have in this organization as a coach or a roving instructor or something, but he can't be a player anymore. He just can't. You're going to have to move on. Now, you sign a veteran catcher to play with Yanir Diaz, that's, hey, that's great. You know, as a backup catcher, as a veteran guy who, you know, can give you kind of what I would call bust protection, that's fine. But Yanir Diaz needs to be out there 100-plus games a year. Chas McCormick needs to be out there 130, 140-plus times a year. It's time to move on. And it's time to, you know, to go forward with this team. And you need a manager that can do that. So if you get somebody with Dana Brown hand in hand, if it's Craig Council, which, you know, has been kind of rumored one of the content, hey, if it's Joe Espada, hey, Brad Osmus, hey, it's Walt Weiss, hey, you know, it doesn't matter to me as long as Dana Brown signs off on it and says, that's my guy. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. I just... I get a little worried that we're maybe getting away from the analytical approach that, that got us to where we are. You know, Dusty, Dusty bucked it for sure. And and he like would like to say, I, you know, I mix my feel with the analytics, but like the mix was like 80% Dusty's feel and 20% analytics, right? It wasn't exactly him taking the data and doing anything with it. And, I mean, we're really starting to see the the, the holes that the, the punishment we got for 2017 is coming through. Like the pitching prospects just aren't the same as, as they were two or three years ago, right? When you had guys like Christian Javier coming up, you had guys like Brian Abreu coming up, you had Hunter Brown coming up. Like these guys are not here, and, and there's really not much behind it, right? Like you, like you said, you've got Aaron Getty, and you just gave away your two top prospects to go get Verlander, which, again, I had no issue with. But you brought Dana Brown in to rebuild that My League system, which I totally get. But we still need to, number one, draft a certain way and have and have a de- development process the whole way through, which I think he's going to be good at in- implementing. But also we've got to have a manager that's willing to take some data and take some initiative from guys who say, hey, here's what I'm seeing. Here's what the trends are, are, are showing us. Do with it what you will, but please interpret this data and, and do something with it. I, that's what I want to find. And I just, I don't know if Brad Ausmus is that guy. That's the one that scares me a little bit. Like, I understand he, he had a lot of injuries everywhere he went, but he had some pretty good teams in Detroit and he made the playoffs like one time. He did not make the playoffs with the Angels, but, you know, no one does. But this, like, I just, that move doesn't excite me, you know. Like this is, this might be the most important managerial signing the Astros could ever make, Scott. Right? Because we're at the prefaces right now. Like 
kind of changing the the makeup of this franchise a little bit. There's going to be some key, you know, departures, acquisitions. This is not the same team that's been there for a while, right? Like, no, Brantley's gone. Maldonado's probably gone, as you said. Um, who knows what's going to be up with Fromber? He was shaky this year. Christian Javier was not great this year. Maybe Lance McCullers is back. We'll see. But like right now, it's like it's it's JV, and then who else in the starting rotation realistically do you, do you feel reliable about? So you've got a huge offseason coming up for the Astros because offensively, everybody's back. That, that matters for the most part, right? Like you literally have your entire starting seven defensively minus Maldonado, but you've replacing him with a better catcher. So at the end of the day, you're fine offensively, but like this whole pitching staff needs some serious work. And I don't necessarily know where it's coming from. Well, let me say two things. First of all, uh, one of the things that I think, uh, knowing about Brad Osmus. So Brad Osmus went to Dartmouth University, which is obviously one of the Ivy League schools. I don't um, mean to say he's not he's not smart, and I, I hope well, I didn't come across that way. Well, no, no. And, and one of the key things is I remember as a, as a, a member of Sabre, we met with Tim Perpur at the time, who was 100% unimpressive. Tim Perpur. However, something that Tim Perpur Yeah, what, what, one of the things Tim Perpur said about Brad Osmus is they had an outside scouting source that they um, that they basically contracted out to. And so this would be a binder two inches thick on every team, every series. And so basically it's every hitter in there and pitcher, but obviously, you know, Osmus only cares about the hitters at that point as he's a catcher. Basically, every count, every possible count, every possible pitch that he could see in that count. And so, you know, by percentage, like here's what happens when he did, you know, curveballs alone away, sliders alone away, you know, so here, here's what would happen. He digested this entire binder every series and used it. So when you're looking at Brad Osmus, you're looking at a guy that is able to digest an absolute shit ton of information. The question is, how is he going to use it? I don't know the answer to that. And the problem is, is that when you're bringing in these guys, and, and you know, I'll, I'll sit there and say, Craig Council, number one, I'm not a Brewers fan. I've seen maybe two or three Brewers games in the last 10 years. So, you know, if somebody was to sit there and say, hey, you know, Craig Council's our guy, I don't know that. I don't know how he manages his team. So this is where we have to trust the brain trust in the room, which would be Jim Crane, Dana Brown, and unfortunately, probably Reggie Jackson and Jeff Bagwell to sit there and say, okay, so with Brad Osmus, how would he use the information? Because you're talking about analytics, which I think is a source of information. How would he use that? Did he have information like that at his fingertips in Detroit? Don't know. Did he have that uh, that information at his fingertips in in Anaheim, Los Angeles? Doubtful. So you know, and and when you look at the Angels, when you look at the fact that they lost under Phil Nevin, they fired Osmus to hire Joe Madden. They lost under Joe Madden. So to me, to sit there and say that you know that's a black mark on Osmus, no, it's not. The Angels suck. 
The Angels suck no matter who their manager is. Now, here is one thing I will say that I think Tim will absolutely endorse 190%, or we might just cancel this podcast right now. Somebody mentioned Ron Washington and Jeff Bannister. Fuck no. Because you know what? Yeah, they, they're, they're probably salty. They got fired by the Rangers. The Rangers are going to win the World Series this week. I don't know if they're doing it tonight. I don't know if they're doing it on Friday night or Saturday night. I don't know when they're going to do it, but they're going to win the World Series. You don't get back at them by hiring their failed fucking managers. What you do is you hire the best guy for the job, and you go out there and you kick their ass. That's how you get back at the Rangers. Juan Washington was a horrible manager. He cost them at least one World Series. Jeff Bannister couldn't get there in his wildest dreams. Bruce Bochy, I mean, at least during the playoffs, has been a hell of a manager. So you know what? Tip of the cat to Bruce Bochy, you're not getting back at the Rangers by hiring their old retreads. So you know, fuck that. Get, let's get that get that right done right there. Well, and to be fair, the quote was Ron Washington has interest in the Astros job. No idea if the Astros have interest in Ron Washington, which I quote tweeted and said, hey, I, I also have interest in the Astros managerial job. And no idea if they have interest in me, but hey, guys, I'll take an interview. I'll come together with a 17-page Jeff Luno-type spreadsheet and, and, and see what I can do. I, I don't know if it would be any better or worse than what those other guys are putting together, but I'd give it a shot. I'm right there with you. I'd do it. Yeah, give me a call. I would I would like to like have a raffle. Like maybe you could even do it for charity or whatever. Ten bucks a ticket. You know, one fan gets a job interview. And like then you post a video online. And like I'd honestly like to see how that goes. Yeah, I'm I'm with you there. That would be entertaining. Uh, but yeah, I think you know you and I both have a pretty good idea of who the you know the you know the top four or five guys are, and none of those names are guys that I have any particular problems with. It, it to me, it's the process. Who is involved in the decision making, and if it's mainly Brown, I'm on board. I agree with you. You brought him in to do a job. Um, you know, if you're trusting him that he's the guy to do this job, we have to do it. I just um, you know, I'm definitely nervous because this, as I said, this is a huge off season for the Astros. I think offensively, you know, we'll see next year, but we should be one of the better teams in the league offensively, but the pitching staff scares me. We're losing a lot of, um, you know, crucial players. I don't think we'll be able to afford to bring Naris back and, and make some moves, but you know, speaking of moves, there's one thing I want to, to bring up, Scott, did you see, Vegas has the Astros as the second favorite to to bring Juan Soto in this this offseason. I did not see that. Um, he does have one more year, I think, before he's a free agent. And so I don't even know if the Padres are dealing him, really, to tell you the truth. Um, they, oh, they definitely have mentioned that they're going to deal him or they're going to try and deal him because he's they couldn't get the extension done. Um, and so that's why he's being shopped around right now. But as you said, he's got one year left. Next year's his final deal. I don't know if we have what it takes to go get him. I doubt Jim Crane 
wants to do the contract he wants. But man, it'd be cool to fill yeah. that left field hole with Juan Soto. Yeah, you know the thing is with with that. And the, my question with Crane and Crane has always said that he is willing to go past the tax, the tax threshold, but he never has. And so it's one of those things. And, and I said the same thing with Drayton McLean, obviously not with the tax threshold because Drayton McLean didn't get anywhere near the tax threshold. But the question always was, are you willing to go balls to the wall to really fund this thing? And to me, I think he could certainly afford to go up to 220-230 in terms of payroll, but does he want to? And and I think he could afford to get Soto. I think he could afford he can afford to pay Tucker what he wants to be paid. He could afford to pay Framber what he wants to be paid. He could afford to go out there and extend Altuve now, and extend Bregman now, and extend Pena, and extend Chaz. He could he could pay out any contract he wants based on the revenue that's coming in right now. Does he want to? I don't know. That's the question. It's tough, right? Because we want our owners to be fans of the team, right? We want guys who want to win. We don't want people who look at a, at like an asset, you know, say like the A's owner, out of, an out-of-state guy who's looking to maybe move his team, make more money, get a free stadium, do what you got to do. We want people who, number one, want to be a part of the local community, but number two, want to win. And for the most part, Jim Crane has shown he wants to win, but he's, I'm not going to say done on the cheap, because he's went out and he's got guys, but he's also let a lot of talent walk. For the most part, when push comes to shove, the only guy we've ever really brought back that, that went to free agency was Justin Verlander. Because he did it on a two-year deal. None of these, you know, Springer, gone. Garrett Cole, gone. Carlos Correa, gone. Besides Cole, you know, this is homegrown talent that the Astros have lost. You you let a number one overall pick walk out the door. Now, knowing what we know now, with his back and all that stuff, okay, he wasn't going to get that fat contract, but... At the end of the day, at some point, you've got to pay somebody. And, you know, we got lucky that Bregman signed that deal early. But I, I honestly, I think the way Bregman played for a couple years or two or three years there, that, that deal kind of was overall market value for him. I think maybe the next one's a little bit more. But Altuve outplayed his contract. He was willing to sign a, a team-friendly deal, and hopefully he'll do it again. At what You know, Alvarez signed a very team-friendly deal. We we really haven't gone out and splurged in free agency. Like, we don't have that super expensive guy. We've done a nice job of spreading it out. But, like, now's the time, Scott. Like, you still – you can push this thing. You can push this thing further if you go out this offseason and, and you take on a couple high-end guys that have some contracts that – or a little bit more, or you go out and get an Ian Snell, or you go out and get an Aaron Nola, or something like that, right? You need something to to bolster this rotation. So, in terms of the past decisions, I will say this. I think that um, Garrett Cole's value overall is held up. I think that, you know, he maybe had one down season, but I think 
here's the thing that I think everybody needs to understand is that when you start signing guys to six, seven, eight years, you're going to have to bank on one of those years at least being just a wash because of injuries, because of ineffectiveness, whatever, right? Springer, I don't think has held up in terms of the value. Uh, Correa hasn't held up in terms of the value. And so really the only guys you've lost, I think, who I think have held up have been Cole and Morton are the only, the only two guys. So here's my question then. If I can afford to extend this window two years and really go balls to the wall, would you rather do that, get yourself a Soto or get yourself like a kick-ass pitcher, one of those two? Would you rather do that or would you rather put your eggs in the basket of re-signing a Tucker, re-signing an Altuve, re-signing a Framber, maybe being good for an additional four years, but maybe not the very, very top of the baseball universe. Being one of those where we're going to win 90 to 95 games and we're just going to hope we get lucky versus being that 100 to 110 win team that we were in, let's say, 18, 19, and 21. So I, don't, I just watched the Kelsey podcast, uh, the Kelsey documentary on um, Prime. And if anybody hasn't seen it, it's fantastic. But but Travis and Jason both, you know, say say something on there that's going to, you know, affect my answer here. But when you win one year and then you don't win again the next year, it makes you want it even again more that third year because you've been to that mountaintop, you've tasted it, and, and you want it back. And if you think about what the Astros did after they did not get out of the LCS in 2018, they swung and they made some moves, right? They went big. And I think they're about to do the same thing. I think you got to go big, Scott. You got to come charging back. You still, as long as you have Jose Altuve on this roster, you got a chance, right? So I think as long as he's around, you got to try and keep this window open. Because let's think back to what they did to Craig Biggio and paraded out just dog shit at the end of that guy's career. You know, you signed Carlos Lee and we're, and we're celebrating that like it's a big move. Like the Astros, you know, the last few years really were not contenders. 2005, like after that, you know, 2006, we go get Preston Wilson. Woohoo. You know, like you got to come back hard. You've got to come back hard this offseason. And, and to me, it's another big arm. If you can sign Tucker, okay. If not, you've got to get a big bat to replace him. Well, you can't, you can't, there's nothing to sustain that loss in the farm system right now. Well, what I would say about 2019, though, is I think we got to be careful. And looking at, you know, the team did make some big news, but when did they make big moves? And that was a that was a team that added in July. They did, but they also that, brought Brantley in in the offseason, which was to Brantley, fill a big hole. They brought Brantley in, but see, here's the thing, and here's the difference between Drake McClain and Jim Crane. I think Jim Crane is a guy that goes out, will go out there and sit there and say, spin me to the very 
pinnacle, almost at the tax threshold. And he's a guy that he, at least when Luna was GM, you go out and spend me 190 million the best way you can. That, you know, to me, that's an owner that I, you know, can certainly respect and tip my cap to. Because as a general manager, you give me that kind of a budget and you leave it open to me. Yeah, there's a, I can find you some bargains that will get you there. And I think Brantley was more of a bargain than a lot of people think. He was not a top dollar free agent. He was a guy that, you know, I think was you know in the middle class of free agents. But he and filled exactly what the Astros needed at that yes, time, right? Yes. And, and then, of course, you got the catcher, you know, from uh, Torinos was a great signing yeah. that year. He had a lot of homers. Yeah. So the difference was, is I think that Drayton McLean was never a guy that I was going to go balls to the wall to compete. He was a guy that I'm going to make the appearance like I'm going to compete. So I'm going to sign Carlos Lee because he's a big name player. And I think that'll sign, you know, sign some tickets. He was a guy that went out and got Dre Beck and Swindell because they were Texas boys. And he thought that everybody's going to come to the ballpark to watch the Texas boys. And of course that didn't happen that way. And here's the kicker. Do you know who was a free agent that off season that we came close to signing? Ozzy Smith. Could you imagine getting Ozzy Smith in the early nineties? You know, and, and would he have been the guy that threw, threw them over the top? Probably not, but he would have been a whole lot more effective than Greg Swindell, you know, for the same amount of money. And so, but, but he said, because Ozzy Smith wasn't a Texas boy, I don't want him. And Preston Wilson, I think he was a Texas boy, you know. And, and so we're getting these guys because we think, oh, the fans are going to come out and watch them. I remember when Preston Wilson, they said, here are the fly balls he hit and, and how many of them would have been home runs at Minute Maid Park. Give me a fucking break. You know, you know that that's, you know, just lazy analysis if there ever was one. So I don't really consider Drayton McLean because he was just a kind of a fake guy. Crane is a guy I think wants to win, but I think he's a guy that knows he can win for $200 million and doesn't have to sit there and do what Cohen is doing up in New York where you know he's spending you know half a billion dollars to try and win. I think Crane is smart enough to know that he can do it without going there. So the question is, how much is he willing to go? If, if you could sit there and say, hey, I can get Soto and, you know, re-sign some guys, maybe a pitcher for $250 million. Would he be willing to do that? I think he'd still be profitable. Is he willing to do that? I don't know. And that's, and that's the hard thing. And I think that's what makes a great owner too, right? Like you have to understand when times change and when strategy needs to change. When you had a farm system that was loaded with, with, you know, good young, um, Latin ball players, the way the Astros were for the longest time, like they were loaded with with guys from Spanish speaking countries that had great arms. It's not there right now, so you were able to be at that one ninety mark, right? Because these guys were all pitching for like rookie minimums. They were not pitching for big time contracts. But you know what? The ones that performed, they're going to get paid. Javier got paid. Fromber wants to get paid if he's going to be able to perform at a high level next year. We'll see. But at some point, 
the price of admission got has has to go up, right? And I I I understand that you don't want to be Will Pond up in up in New York because I don't think that's an effective way to do things either. Because look, you blew it up in one season, but you also don't want to be the Marlins or you don't want to be the A's that's just like anytime they get a good guy, you trade them away. And so you've got to find that happy medium because I think the Red Sox and the Yankees, they everybody thought they were spending so much in the nineties. But now if you look at the way they do things nowadays, like they're willing to spend when they feel like they have, have the right core guys. And, and, and that's, what's key in baseball, right? Like you've got to spend smartly. Like, the Rangers spent a ton of money, but like realistically, when you look at the young guys that they had and then surrounding it with the with the talent they did, I thought this was going to be a better team next year. But you know what? They did it this year because you filled your holes with money. And so, you know, at the end of the day, you can't build the whole house on money, but you can fill holes with it. That's really the hard thing, because, you know, when I'm looking at, you know, some of the names you mentioned, Ian Snell scares me. Because if you look at his numbers, he had a really good year this year. When was the last time that he put up numbers like this year? I mean, it had been about two or three years in between. Um, and I'd almost rather have a guy that I could count on for 160, 170 innings that could go out there, pitch a sub-4 ERA, maybe win me 12 or 13 games. But I know that I get that from that guy. See, Snell is a guy that he could give me borderline Cy Young stuff. He could be completely just like uh, Jacob DeGrom and absent. And I don't know that you can afford to give a guy 20 to $25 million a year, which is probably where he's going to go, and not be able to count on him producing at that level. I would almost rather give a guy 10 to $15 million and actually bank on that level of performance, you know, because I think that's what this rotation needs. I think you have JV is a good top of the rotation guy. I think if you have a good pitching coach, Fromber is a guy that maybe you get his head on straight. What you need is a middle of the rotation guy that you can count on every five days to give you something. And I don't know if Snell's that guy. And that's the problem with teams like the Mets is they'll go out and chase the guy that was good last year well, that may or may not be the way you want to go. And and that's, you know, and that's where I think hopefully Dana Brown, you're giving him the keys and you're sitting there saying, here's how much you have to spend this offseason. You go out and get me the best talent for that price. I, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but it's where are you going to get the talent, right? The, this is a pretty thin free agency market. Um you know, there's guys like Glass now that are ruined to be available because the race probably won't be able to afford them. Things like that. Like, man, I'd love to get my hands on him, but but what prospects do we have to pry that guy loose? So this is the time where you've got to look at Jim Crane and you say, I need more than 190. I need 225, Jim. Are the yeah. cupboards bare? Give me a couple. I need you to reach in your pockets a little bit the next few years, and we're going to have to pay the price of, you know, having all of our guys come up, you know, you had a great group of young guys. They're here. You, we've paid some, we need to pay more and we need to get more talent around them. So the price of admission has to come up. I think Jim Crane has to understand that. And if you look at, 
at teams that that have a history of success, you, they know when to spend. They know, you know, you know, the Cardinals are a great example. You know, look with as Pujols is aging and they know their their window is is getting smaller. What do they do? They go and bring in Lance Berkman. They had guys like Matt Holiday. Cardinals had a good young core, but they also knew we need we had a chance to get something here, and they went and did it. And and part of it is arms, but and that's what the Astros need. You've got to find some arms, and and maybe another bat. And that's and, the it's the right guys. It's the right, and, and so I'm going to throw out a name that I think is would intrigue me if you have a pitching coach who is confident that he can do this. Frankie Montas. I mean, he was top of the top of the game when he was in Oakland. He was the guy that everybody wanted to trade. The Yankees went and got him. He did jack shit for the Yankees. In fact, I think he pitched like one third of an inning this year because he had blown out his arm. He'll be coming back healthy next year, but for who? He's a free agent. Could you maybe throw like a five million dollars at him if? you have pitching coaches that are confident that you can get something out of them because basically that's who Charlie Morton was. Charlie Morton was a guy that had maybe pitched less than five innings the previous year. If you look at his 2016 numbers before he came to Houston in 2017, he was practically the same guy. He was a guy that, you know, Jeff Lunau and the pitching coaches were confident. Brent Strom was confident. I can get something out of this guy. And they did. So to me, do you have the pitching coaches and the hitting coaches who are confident that here's maybe one or two guys that would come cheaply, but we think would be good depth pieces that we could get something out of? I'm all for that. And I think that's that's also, too, where we're really missing Brett Strom. There was any pitcher the Astros brought in, Scott, I, I had immediate phase of like Strom, Strom sees something. Strom sees something that no one else is seeing that we're going to fix this guy. And and I'll be damned if it wasn't like 99% of the time we were right as fans. Where I, that hasn't been the case the last couple of years. And, I, and our pitching uh, our pitching coaches this year were not good. Not good at all. When you look at every one of our, our starting pitchers that was on the team last year that came back this year – took a step back and you can include JV in that JV was a Cy Young ward win last year. It was unbelievable. And this year was good. Fromber took a step back. Javier took a leap back. Hunter Brown was an unbelievable rookie talent that like was eh, this year. I, th- I think what happened is that your, your pitching coaches were human. I don't think they were bad. I think they were probably middle of the road guys. I think where you look at it, and I think where Strom was married to this analytics, analytical approach, and so you had both. And so here you had a guy, and because I remember this was, you know, so let, let's look back at 2019. Let's look back that you acquired Aaron Sanchez in addition to Zach Grinke at the deadline. Now, remind me, Tim, because I know you remember this. What did he do in his first start with the Astros? He started a no-hitter. So basically what happened with Aaron Sanchez, and this is what they did. They said, look at your batting average against on this pitch. It was his curveball. Throw your curveball more. Hey, look, guys are teeing off on your slider. Don't freaking pitch that pitch as much. 
throw your fastball, throw your curveball, and and that was that's pure analytics. So that's something Strong ha- Strom could do, but that's something that your analytics department could do as well. What you need though is you need a pitching coach who can actually lift those guys out of the ashes. Because I, I I don't think they performed poorly because we had bad pitching coaches. I think what you had is you had a perfect storm of this team playing into November for three consecutive years. I think you had a team that, you know, you had quite a few guys that were pitching in the World Baseball Classic. You had guys that were adjusting to the fact that we have a new pitch clock. We had guys like, say, Luis Garcia, where they said, this pitching uh, uh, motion that you've been using your entire life you're going to have to change right now. It, it was a perfect storm. And so I think what's going to happen is, is that you're going to have to allow that Dana Brown, whoever he picks as manager, that manager's going to have to sit there and say, you know what, this guy over here, he's my guy. I want him as a pitching coach. You know, this guy over here, I want him as my hitting coach. You can't be holding over guys. You need to, you need to empower the people, the baseball guys in your organization to do their job, and you need to let them have the people they're confident in to do their job. That's how this is going to work. And I think you're, you're absolutely right, Scott, because that's what worked with Lou now, too, was he was, a, he was a numbers guy. Hinch is a numbers guy. Stromy was a numbers guy, right? All these guys wanted more, more, more of that data from the analytics department. So, you know, we know the Astros have that department. We know they're capable of putting that stuff together. You know, let's hope that's that's the route they go. And let's hope that I, I'm with you full lockstep and, and, and jump there, though, of it needs to be a whole new staff, right? Like, cause even if it's a spada, hey, Joe, who do you want, right? Like, I don't want you to feel like you need to bring these guys back. I want Alex Cintron gone. Like I really am tired of him. I don't. He's a he's an okay coach. I I think you can find better, but he's just personality wise, he's always the first one to get thrown out of a game for chirping for balls and strikes from the dugout, all that kind of stuff. I, I don't. Uh, I, I don't love the Astros' approach from the plate. Sometimes I really think we we swing first pitch a lot and and let guys get deep into games and settle in. Um. You know, these are things that Espada's got to be able, if it's him, I'm not saying it will be, but if you stay then, he's got to be able to put his imprint on this team too. So no matter which way they go, that manager needs to be able to say, this is how we want to do things on my ball club. All right, Tim. Um, I think we've been hitting this pretty hard. Um, we probably need to, you know, maybe a shift to something a little bit. I don't know if it's a happier topic. Here's a happy topic. First one of the rocket season just finished up. I saw that. So, you know, where are you? That the Rockets are one and three now. Uh, so where are you on this team, you know, to really to start off the season? Not great. I mean, they just beat the Hornets. It was a must win, I feel like, because their schedule's really, really hard to start the year. But um I think we as fans kind of for some reason got in our heads that this might be a year for us to sneak in as a seven or eight seed. I don't know if that's that team. I, you know, I, I've got a lot of questions on on Raphael Stone. I think he's got to be in the hot seat. Jalen Green, 
does not look like the guy. Um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see, Scott. But got the first one of the season. Um, I like I like the offense running through Sengun. I like the little pick, uh, the little pick and roll game that they developed there. But um, you know, they got to learn how to close out basketball games because the second game of the year, uh, I was watching that game. I can't remember who it was off the top of my head. Um, but they had a real chance to. Oh, it was against the Spurs. And yes, the the whistles went went by, went by his way, but the Rockets had fifty percent from the line and had several free throws down the stretch that they missed that would have just closed the game out. So, um, can't let a game like that go to overtime. Young players have to learn how to win, but also like you know, Ime's got to put these guys in the position to win, and we and we've got to find ways to do that. So I'll say two things. I think on the positive side, what I've seen is I think, you know, Fred Van Vliet and Dylan Brooks are giving this team a floor that they did not have. I think Dylan Brooks has been what we needed on defense. He's a dog. Well, they've been given this team, you know, because I think Fred Van Vliet is a guy that, you know, tonight, 22 points, 11 assists. That's you know, that's what you want out of your point guard. And he's a guy that, thank God, they got rid of Pevin, Kevin Porter Jr. We talked about that in the past. He's gone. Thank goodness. But you look at, you know, I'm looking at the box score now. Sangoon is your leader in rebounds with seven. With seven. Jabari Smith, six. Uh, Landale off the bench with five, Tate, you know, uh, Deshaun Tate with six. You know, this team could really use like a Chuck Hayes, like in, in the worst possible way, just a guy that can come off the bench for 15, 20 minutes and could be in the post and actually rebound. And, and you need a post who is an old-fashioned double-double guy. You, you know, need a ten and ten guy. Yeah, right? you need you a ten need and ten, and and this guy's not on the roster. Now I don't know about you know Jalen Green. I you know this we're four games in. This is his first experience with you know somebody who is going to push him as a coach. He doesn't have Kevin Porter Jr. as a negative you know dragging him down in terms of um of a personality fit in the clubhouse, you know, so I'm willing to give him a season to figure out, you know, whether or not he's the right guy, but this is not a playoff team. And the thing is, is that you're going to get another lottery pick, you know, and knowing our, you know, knowing our luck, we're going to win the lottery when you don't have a like consensus number one out there. That seems to be, you know, the Rockets kind of luck these days, but this team needs, a just you know, somebody in the post who can defend. And I don't think that's Jabari Smith. I don't think that's Sengun. Um, I, I like them as players. I think they're good prospects. I like, you know, the offense running through Sengun as well, but they're just missing that element to this team. And like you, I don't know if Rafael Stone is the guy to find that. Um, in, in the whole thing with Kevin Porter Jr., somebody's going to have to answer for that. And I don't know if it's Rafael Stone at the end of the day. I don't know if you're going to have to go all the way to the top and go with Fertitta answering for that. I don't know. But, you know, somebody's going to have to sit there and say, hey, I was the one that signed off on this. 
and signed off on his contract and I thought it was a good idea and I was wrong. Somebody's got to be there with that. And it's not just the contract, it's the ripple effects, right? Like there you, you didn't go and draft um the, the power forward or the center from USC uh Mobley because he and Kevin Porter Jr had issues with each other while they're at USC, right? Like that's documented. You did not play John Wall and and really made a public spectacle of this organization because you wanted to prioritize Kevin Porter Jr. learning how to play the point guard. You took the ball out of Jalen Green's hands because you wanted to prioritize Kevin Porter Jr. playing point guard. You did not run plays for Jabari Smith his entire rookie year because you wanted to prioritize Kevin Porter Jr. having the ball in his hand. You didn't let Sengun do what Sengun can do because all you know all of this stems back to Kevin Porter Jr. Then you extend him, and then he does this bullshit, right? Like someone absolutely has to answer for that because one man's love affair with Kevin Porter Jr. realistically set us back a couple years, right? Like think about some of the you know think about Evan Mobley on this team. Paired next to Sengun, right? Well, there's your 10 and 10 guy who can still stretch the floor a little bit. Because that's what's tough to find tough to find is that guy who can bang down low but still get out of the way on the perimeter so that way Sengun has room to operate. Because Sengun, if you've got a guy who's sitting down there in the low post, the, the lane's gonna be clogged for him every time he's coming down. He needs to be able to play the five, and you need to have, you know, someone who is at least out on the wing to hit corner threes, which is what they've wanted Jabari Smith to do. He just, number one, hasn't hit him. And number two is so underweight, he's getting just beasted in the paint. So, I mean, that's kind of similar. You know, what you're discussing is kind of similar to the whole, like, let's say, Yanni or Diaz situation with the Astros. Because this is where, you know, you want to play that. Now, if the Evan Mobley draft, if you take Evan Mobley, you're not taking Jalen Green, right? Am I correct in that? So if you don't have Jalen Green at the two, maybe this year's draft you have Thompson. Maybe he's the two. Right now he's playing off the bench. So kind of the question is, you know, you're kind of trading, you know, trading pieces there. Are you better with Mobley in the paint and Jalen Green not being on the roster? or vice versa, you know, I mean, there's obviously a debate to be had there. And so, you know, but I think I'm with you. And I think the problem with the way that I see Raphael Stone uh, developing this roster is, is that he's been very much a kind of, what do you call a rotisserie style GM, where I'm going to get a guy that I think is good without, regardless of how he fits within the whole concept of the team. You know, to me, with basketball and football is kind of the same in that baseball, give me the best player and I'll figure out a way to fit him in. But basketball and football, you got to get guys to fit together. I don't know if it's rotisserie, because for, for those who don't know, rotisserie is basically fantasy, right? Like that was what it yeah. used to be called. I don't know if it's that as much as like, I think it's like a stockbroker. He's acquiring assets because I don't think he... Uh, 
really thinks this is his final roster, right? So to him, he's like, gimme, 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 gimme. And then let me flip that. Let me flip this. Let me flip that. And let me try. And, and I think he's trying to do too much, right? I think there is no chemistry. There is no – what's the Rockets' way, right? Like what is the, you know, the uh, character? You know, there's no – there's not, you know, what, there's nothing like the the Rockets were a party team for. Well, and, and look the, at Thompson. And James Harden's entire time here. He, they were a party team, and that continued with the rookies. You could go do whatever the part of my language. You could do whatever the fuck you want as long as you were here by six thirty for shoot around. Well, look at Thompson, right? And so this is the one that kills me. So let's say Kevin Porter Jr. is still on this team. Let's say he had not had that situation with his girlfriend. When was Thompson going to get to play? I, mean, I think you were going to play him off. I think you were going to play Kevin Porter Jr. off the ball as like the backup two guard and, and let Thompson be the backup one guard. Thompson hasn't looked good. Well, Thompson, he hasn't. But the, here again, you have a guy that's, you know, a top three pick. He's young. And and he's young. And, and it's one of those where you were really unlucky because, you know, if you had gotten the number two pick, you would have gotten Scoot Henderson. And that would have been your point guard. You wouldn't have signed Van Vliet. You would have signed somebody else. So, yeah, I mean, just this team has been really unlucky in the lottery. I mean, they've been like maybe one pick away from where they wanted to be three years in a row. You know, if you had gotten the number one pick this year, obviously you would have gotten um, you would have gotten the French guy. And then, but if you had gotten the second pick, you would have gotten Scoot Henderson and he would have been your point guard of the future. But, you know, you couldn't do that. But to me, what was your idea with Thompson? You know, where was he going to be? Because at the time you picked him, KPJ was a very important part of this, this roster. So where was he going to play? So at this point, it seems like you just felt like, well, he's the best guy on the board, I guess. So there you go. To me, to me that's what that pick felt like. And to me, he, to me, that felt like a, a Raiders pick. You know how there's always somebody who comes in and runs a really fast 40, who's a wide receiver and the Raiders make him a first round pick. And to me, that kind of, that kind of felt like the Thompson pick. He had some great, um, skills. He has some great attributes about him. He's long, he's lanky, he's fast. He can't fucking shoot. And you well, know what, at the end of the day, you can't make it in the NBA if you can't shoot. You have to be – look what has happened to Russell Westbrook. It is a different game. You could not make it in today's NBA if you can't shoot the basketball. Well, this is where Raphael Stone is. I mean, this is where, you know, KPJ is definitely a part of this. He wants to be the guy that found the diamond in the rough that became a superstar. So this is where KPJ, they all do. They well, all want to be that guy. Well, but, but no, this is K, this is where I think Stone is, and so he's he's picking up KPJ. Maybe he'll be a super. He'll get his head on straight. Maybe he'll be a superstar. Jalen Green. He's got great athletic skills, faster than a jackrabbit. Maybe he'll be a superstar. Thompson. Well, if he ever learns how to shoot, maybe he'll be a superstar. And it's almost like he's buying lotto lotto tickets. They could, you know, maybe this guy will be the guy. And maybe, 
maybe Thompson will become a great player. Maybe Green will become a great player. I don't think KPJ. I think that they it's everything sold on him. But you know, maybe Jabari Smith becomes a great player. But they're not there now. So you're just kind of hoping they develop. But this is hope. And that's where this team is at. You know, this team is at, he's got Brooks, who is a more or less a finished product. And so he's going to, he's going to at least give you strong defense out on, on the wing. He's a good three and D guy. You got Van Vliet, who is at least a competent point guard. So you got that. What else do you got on this team? Sangoon is a guy that I, another guy that could be an absolute superstar monster. Or he's a, he's a, unfinished player that can't play defense but can do a lot of good things offensively. One of those I think, two. I think Sangoon, his floor is a more athletic Luis Scola, right? I think he's gonna, he, he does a lot of what Luis Scola does. He just looks better doing it, right? I think that's the, the, the floor for him. He can give you 12 and 8, 12 and 10 with some nice assists. But also, you're right. I think there's superstar potential there. But at some point, You've like, yeah, it's fine to find a diamond in a rough, but you got to fucking hit when you've got a top three pick. Well, End of the day, like, there's no GM in any sport that if you whiff on top three picks constantly, that you're going to keep your job. Your job is to scout talent and acquire players. And if you don't do a good job of using your opportunity to acquire good players, you're not good at the job. Well, think about your, you know, think about the first title team. Right, if you think in 1993, if I go back, you know, 93, way, way back in the day, right? So, where's this team's Otis Thorpe? Where's this team's Robert Ory? Where's this team's, you know, Kenny Smith or Sam Cassell, Vernon Maxwell, Mario Ellie, Carl Herrera? These are all role players who you who were not superstars. Not a one of them that I've that I've mentioned is a superstar. Not a one. Kim one was obviously, but they different NBA Scott. A different NBA, but they are guys who they they had something they did and they did it nearly every night. That's yeah. the point. That's the point. And it's a different NBA. Yeah, you can't you know having an Otis Thorpe that has you know very little range and is just a rebounder and defender. Yeah, he's not going to be a starting four in today's NBA. I'll grant you that. But he was a guy that I could sit there and say, you know what? He's going to give me about 15 and 10 every night. I knew what I was getting from Otis Thorpe. I knew what I was getting from Robert Ory. Robert Ory was ahead of his time as, you know, a kind of a stretch three. Um, and, and particularly when you put him at the four, you know, in the next season, I mean, he was a guy that, you know, just absolutely gave everybody fits. But the point is, is that I need guys that I know are going to give me something every single night. Dylan Brooks is one of those guys. Fred Van Bleet's one of those guys. Where else am I going to get that from? I think Sangoon, so far, has given you something every night. Who else has on this roster? Who else? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right, Scott. And it's been it's been frustrating, but hopefully 
hopefully these guys can get it going because I do think I like what the offense looks like. We just, we've missed a lot of shots too. Like, let's be honest. We've missed a lot of open looks and at some point, hopefully they'll start falling and maybe we've, we've been too critical early on and these guys gel. I, I think there's room to be, to be uh, room for improvement on this roster and there's moves to be made this season. And, and the Rockets, as we said, have collected a lot of assets that most likely are not going to stick around on this team. Um, you know, holiday is a guy who's probably going to picked up by a team for a playoff run. Um, you know, we'll see about, about Jeff green. I don't know how long he sticks around for, but he looked good tonight. And so these are, you know, veteran guys who can teach Thompson, like, you know, holidays, a guy who could work with Thompson and say, Hey, here's, here, here's a shot you need to get really good at, you know, 15 footer off a of pick and roll. If you're not hitting threes, that's fine. Own this fucking spot. Own the own the uh you know corner corner extended um of the of the foul line you know foul line extended in that area you've got to have a spot on the Chris Paul would get to that spot pull up and never miss that's got to be an option right there's got to be the ability that if you can't get to the rim I've got this space even if it's a floater even if it's the little Tony Parker something but right now if Thompson doesn't get to the rim he's useless and he's playing too fast. And he doesn't understand how to slow the game down and get other players involved. So, you know, the Rockets have a couple veteran guys who hopefully can teach him, but he's been a net negative if we're being completely honest. But again, he's an 18 year old kid playing in the NBA for the first time. So I don't want to be too harsh on a, on an 18 year old. Speaking of being harsh though, Scott, I think we've got a head, head kind of a scummy direction. Cause I, I might actually have, I, I want to cheat this week, Scott. I might have more than one. I'm actually going to throw you a curveball, although I sent this link to you. I don't know if you got it. I saw that, yeah. Um, so since you might have more than one, I'm going to let you lead off. I'll, we'll kind of go sandwich this week. Yeah, I'll go with my first one. You and I talked about this one. Um, fuck you, Roger Goodell, Amy Adams, in the NFL legal department for sending the University of Houston a cease and desist for their Houston blue uniforms, claiming that we um, are infringing on a, you know, a copyright or a likeness of the, of the Titans. Number one, Bud Adams chose that color because it was the color of the city of Houston. They had been using that color before... The Oilers. So that is Houston's color. Our police cars were that color for a long time. Number two, we're not the only team to do that. Rice did it, and they're saying that because the Oilers played at Rice's stadium, it's okay. But why are we singling out the University of Houston for a dope fucking jersey? And number three, it's a bad look. Iowa Hawkeyes look exactly like the Pittsburgh Steelers. Grambling State. Looks exactly like the Packers. Georgia's look exactly like the Packers. They Those teams have no issue with it, and they grant no issues with it. But Amy Adams and the whole Adams family have never liked the city of Houston just because they wouldn't cave to their will and give them a new stadium. And they took their ball, and they ran to Tennessee, and now, God forbid, the coolest fucking uniform that UH has ever rolled out has a, a blue that is long associated with the city of Houston in it. Awful. Awful. P- I called the NFL's PR office and I left a message. It might have had some profanity in it. 
doesn't matter because that was inexcusable. Well, not only that, but the Rockets have busted out those colors every now and then. Well, yeah. And so, yeah. And and this is and is there anything more? The vomit? Chargers wear that color. Why don't they is say, it, "Hey, Chargers, cut it out"? Is there anything more vomit-inducing than watching DeAndre Hopkins score a touchdown as a Titan wearing Oilers jerseys? Yes, watching I him mean, score a, three touchdowns. Well, well yeah, yeah, but I mean. Just, I mean, absolutely watching Manny's boy throw four touchdowns in his first, you know, NFL start. Yeah, good for you, Will Levis. Good for you. But you know what? Yeah. The fact that, you know, they took all the Oilers records, the people in Tennessee could give a shit. I mean, they have all these guys in the ring of honor. They have no idea. Elvin Bethay, Bruce Matthews, Mike Munchak, Earl Campbell. Dan Pastorini, they don't know who these people are. Billy White Shoes Johnson, they, they have no clue who these people are. But, you know, we in Houston do. I mean, people who are my age know, you know, half those guys intimately really well. Grew up watching them. People in Nashville had no idea. So, and, and the fact that they can't even afford to send their own letter, they had to call up. Mr. Goodell, we're poor. Can you send us a letter on our behalf? Come on. That is weak. It it really is, Scott. It is. It's just whiny shit, you know? Like, why can't everybody have a good time? You don't own the color blue. Like, you... I'm sorry. Like it's literally, it's Columbia blue is the name of the the color from the university of Columbia. So like, what are we doing? It's just petty and leave it to the Titans, right? Like they just, they've always done this shit since the moment they took their ball and ran away. All right. So I sent a little chart to, um, to Tim. And so I'm, I'm running a bit of a, uh, an audible here. And so, you know, basically where I was at is, you know, I looked at this chart. And to explain this chart, they have, I'm going to assume, sampled a cross-section of the United States. I'm going to assume that I looked at it twice. I didn't see right, where they were, you know, where they were asking specific kinds of people. So basically, they're just asking people, what percentage of Americans do you think are blank? And we go all the way down the line, right? The two I'm going to highlight for this evening is apparently people think that over 20% of American people are transgender. This is my personal favorite. So you walk into the grocery store, you see five people. One of those five people is transgender. Do you really think that's true? And what I'll say is I, I, I teach at a high school. I teach, um, we have about 1,400 students roughly. And I could count on one hand the numbers that I think are transgender. And I'm going based on the fact that they have a gender neutral name that they wear, you know, androgynous clothes. Um, you know, the, the, 
I think the ones who are transitioning from girl to boy, you know, don't have makeup that they look masculine. So I'm, I'm just assuming they're transgender because I'm not asking them because that's none of my business. Even if I assumed all those people were transgender, that would be like three or four out of a campus of 1400. So for those of y'all that are not good at the math, that's less than 1%. Now, here's where this kind of becomes important. If I believe that over 20% of the country is transgender, well, back when we were young, we were, in, and, and this is just me, back in the 80s, we were basically told that maybe like one in 10 people were somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum. Of course, they didn't call it that that back then. They called it queer, which obviously is is very offensive now. So if you're going from like, say, 10% to 30%, then you're going to believe there's some grooming going on somewhere, right? And here's what I'm going to say, and, and I, I hate to talk for Tim's wife, Haley, but since she's a teacher, I'm just going to guess this. I don't think Haley has an agenda where she's trying to get people to be homosexual. I mean, that's silly, right? I don't have an agenda. Haley's now, agenda is trying to get kids to pass the math start. Exactly, test. exactly. But you see, here's the thing. And this is where I, and this is, my scumbag is whoever is basically feeding into this frenzy because the belief is is that somebody is teaching these kids to be these this thing because they believe that we have somehow tripled the number of people that are these things which is not true it's been the exact same percentage forever i cannot prove to you that there is not a teacher in the united states that's doing this there is a, absolutely a non-zero chance that there is a teacher somewhere that is putting forth this agenda. I, I, I mean, I can't deny it. There's thousands of teachers in the United States. However, what I can say is that there is not a district or a campus that is pushing this kind of agenda. So you might have individual teacher here and there, right? Now, the second one, this is, my, this is right there underneath that one, that there is over 20% of the country earn a million dollars a year or more. I love this because you know what this, you know what this comes in, Tim? And you know, I know it's TikTok. It's, it's social media. Well, no, where this comes in is that if somebody were to propose cutting taxes for the wealthy, well, if one in five people are wealthy, then chances are I'm going to be wealthy someday. I'm going to be one of those five people where it's actually under 1% again, are people who are earning more than a million dollars a year. Now, if I knew the actual percentage and I, and I trusted the actual percentage, then what I would realize is that odds are I'm not getting there. Now, you and I both know. And especially too, Scott, when you look at the numbers of, there's only 34% of Americans who have a household income over $100,000. So that means two thirds of the country doesn't even have one tenth of what they think that they're going to have one day. Right. And, a, and, they're, and, they're, and they're hurting themselves by thinking that way. Well, this is where you and I both know. You and I, I think we know where we're at. We know where we're going to be. And so when we choose to vote on election day, we'll vote for candidates that we think are actually going to represent us and where we are in terms of income and things like that. 
And so I think what makes me mad is when I look at gaps like this, is that you have our politicians and news sources that are exploiting these gaps. And there are many gaps in there that don't make sense. And we could spend... I think we the, could... the real interesting one that you sent me is the, the, the widest margin is the amount of Americans think that 40% of people are military veterans when in actual actuality is six. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, it's that's... Be, and it's because of how much they talk about the veterans, right? And we have to respect the troops and respect the veterans. And, and obviously I, I mean, no disrespect, but with the amount of it that it comes out of these politicians mouth, that leads people to believe like, wow, this must be a good portion of our population. Well, you know, the other one I'll throw out there is, I don't know if you saw the percentage of people that are African-American versus the percentage of people that, think are african-american and so this kind of flows into our criminal justice system where we look at the percentage of people that are in prison who are african-american and if you think that 30 to 40 percent of the country is african-american then looking at the numbers of people that are in jail that are african-american you're like yeah that makes sense except it's nowhere near 30 to 40 percent i don't remember the specific amount but i want to say it's like 14 percent um if that is you know and if, if our chart has that 12. Yeah. Okay. That's right around where, you know, but see, there's plus, there's, there's nobody, a, uh, nobody uh, asked me. And that's kind of yeah. the whole point is that I, I kind of know these things. And so, but if you look at this all the way down the line, we're exploiting our news is exploiting these beliefs. We're not correcting it. We're exploiting it. And so that's where, you know, and the thing, the problem is, is I, and I think with, with homosexuality is that there are people who are against homosexuality and people against transgender. And I don't, I don't have a particular problem with that per se. What I have a problem with is that if you believe that the numbers are exploding, then what you're telling those people is not only are, is this something you're against, but this is something you're against that's getting worse. And so then they're going to have an overinflated sense of how important this issue is. And I think that's where the problem lies is that if you understood that, Hey, seven to 8% is somewhere on that LGBTQ, you know, spectrum. And it's been that way since the 1980s and it really hasn't changed. Then you'd kind of look at things and you'd go like, okay, maybe there's some other issues here that are more important that I should be focusing on. But see, we're not doing that. We're, you know, we are exploiting those people so that they're voting on that and they are overlooking the issues that, you know, should be important to them, like how many millionaires are there and how many millionaires are there likely to be? And what are we doing with the tax policies in terms of, you know, millionaires? So that's, those are my scumbags. Whoever's exploiting this, the, these gaps are my scumbags for the week. I'm with you. I am absolutely with you, Scott. We we have some broken ass systems here in this country and, and people make a lot of money off of them and, and they continue to exploit them to make more money. Um, but speaking of exploitation and making money, my, my second scumbag um, is, is going to be Major League Baseball this week, Scott. And I think... When you look at the NFL, and I we just talked about NFL are scumbags in every shape and form, but when you look at at least how they present teams, I don't think there's really like a Super Bowl matchup that doesn't get watched, right? Like it doesn't really matter who's in the Super Bowl. It's such an event, and they've created such a spectacle around it, 
and they do such a good job of marketing it that it's going to get watched no matter what. With the World Series this year, it's record low numbers for viewership, and it's it's only Major League Baseball's fault. They shove the same teams down your throat over and over and over again on Sunday night baseball. It's always Yankees. It's always Red Sox. It's always the Dodgers. It's always the Padres with all the, the stars. The Mets are on there. But it's always those East Coast, California, West Coast, I mean, uh, East Coast and California, West Coast teams. They do nothing to introduce you to teams across the country. You know, this this Diamondbacks team is young. They're exciting. It should be one that people like are talking about. And instead, they're talking about this is the worst World Series matchup ever. And, you know, like I don't want to take anything away from the Rangers. I don't want to. I, I Obviously, I'm not excited about the Rangers winning, potentially winning the World Series as they head to the ninth of the, of the lead here. But at the end of the day, it's just like there's no pizzazz around anyone but like five teams. And then you had a team like the Astros come up to, to challenge those teams and everybody hates them. You know, you, you turned them into a scapegoat. Like, realistically, if you wanted to right now, you could have a Yankees-Red Sox-type rivalry with the Astros and Rangers. And it should be, right? Like, there's a chance that both these teams could be good for the, you know, next two, three, four, five seasons. And there's some vitriol there. The fans do not like each other. And we can talk shit back and forth the same way that Red Sox and Yankees fans do. But they won't play into that. They won't really do anything with it. They'll put us on Apple Plus on Friday nights. You know, that's what Major League Baseball is doing. They're they're setting up, go, go pay extra money to go watch this here. And instead of putting new, young, fresh rivalries front and center and letting them go. And, and you just have no idea, um, you know, what's going to happen. This freaking Simeon hit a grand, uh, hit a grand slam to... Uh, Make it a 5 nothing game going into the ninth inning. But, you know, it is what it is. Well, uh, two things on that. Number one, the NFL, uh, and, and in college football, both, absolutely made for television. Absolutely made for television. Because, you know, you're, you're talking about a once-a-week event. And so if I'm a an national announcer and you're asking me to study up on the Texans, I can study up on the Texans within a week. I can come out and talk fairly intelligently about the Texans. But if you're asking me, national announcer, to talk intelligently about, say, the Kansas City Royals, uh, don't know. But that's um, part of the problem. But see, but see, that goes into it, too. I meant to mention, I meant to mention, why are we still running guys like John Smoltz out there, too? Right? Like, every, if you look at, if you look at Twitter, everybody hates John Smoltz. But you know what? He's going to get back out there again next year. Here's here's my thing. What I would do, honestly, is in addition to rotating teams on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights and in the ESPN, bring in the color guy from one of the two teams Absolutely. every time. Make it a three-man booth. Sit there and have, okay, if it's the Rangers and, you know, and the Astros, you know, maybe you have Jeff Blum as one of the guys, and then, you know, give me your Rangers color guy on TV as the as the third guy. 
you know, and so at least you can get somebody that could speak intelligently about these two teams that are playing. Because you're absolutely right. If if I sit there and, and turn, of course, I don't watch Wednesday or Sunday. I don't get ESPN, so I don't I don't really watch those. But if I were to turn in, tune in, I would want to know who are the guys on this team. There's a lot of exciting things happening now. You know, one thing I'll say about the Rangers: they win tonight. They finished the postseason eleven and zero on a road. Think about that. I, you know, I got to tip my cat to them. That is an amazing achievement that, you know, of course, teams in the 50s wouldn't have done because they were playing just the World Series. But I can't name you a team that's been, you know, an underdog and won all the road games in the World Series even. But, you know, they were underdogs in every single series and they came out and they won every game on the road. Instead of sitting there saying, oh, it sucks that it was Rangers D-backs. Can we give these guys, you know, a, a thumbs up and say, man, hell of a job that y'all guys did. You know, I, I hate the Rangers, but I've got to applaud them for what they pulled off. Yeah, you tip um, your cap and you say, well, come get you next year. Exactly. But, you know, and the D-backs, they, they did some things that, you know, were, you know, Gabriel Marino kind of, you know, was a guy all year, didn't hit for power. And all of a sudden in the postseason, here he's hitting four home runs in, in the postseason. You, you got, you know, young guys like a Christian Walker, who I think has been a hell of a player, but nobody knows much about. Uh, Corbin Carroll, hell of a player. Nobody knew much about him, you know, this year. I think he's going to be the rookie of the year in the National League this year. Uh, Ketel Marte, you know, uh, an extended uh, hitting streak in the postseason you know, a good player for years, you know, can we please Evan Longoria, who we'll bring him up when we talk about the third base index somewhere down the line. So you've got some guys on that squad who are good players that nobody's talking about. And it's just sad. Uh, and the Rangers side as well. I mean, to me, you know, you cannot get any better than what Corey Seager has done all year long, including the postseason. Obviously, Adalas Garcia, you know, uh, you mentioned it. There's some other people have mentioned it. Is, is he a PED guy? Maybe. But he had a hell of a postseason. Um, it was almost as good as uh, Randy Arozarena, you know, in Tampa Bay in 2020. Um, but, you know, to me, moving forward, you got you got guys that are star guys that you have to tip your cat to. They're, they're great players, and we need to celebrate great players in this game. If I'm looking across you know, the game, I'm looking at guys at every position that are absolutely future Hall of Famers. Absolutely. Jose Altuve at second base. Absolutely. A living, breathing Hall of Famer as we speak. Uh, first base, we talked about Miguel Cabrera earlier, you know, retiring this year. But, you know, there's some guys like, you know, Paul Goldschmidt, Freddie Freeman, living, breathing Hall of Famers as we speak. Celebrate these guys, no matter what team they play for. And let's see all 30 teams. The NFL managed to do this until this year. They managed to put every team in prime time. Major League Baseball, you have it. You, you have 162 games. You can figure this out. Every single team should have at least one primetime, you know, television game, at least one. 
I'm with you, Scott. Major League Baseball has bungled their national broadcast for the longest time. Um, I, I think fans are over Yankees Astros. You know, I, I'd like to go back and look how many national broadcasts are now World Series champion Rangers were on this year, but I bet it was less than two or three. And it is what it is, but they won't get better. They won't make these changes because they don't feel they need to. But at the end of the day, the numbers are down. And I'll be honest, I didn't watch a single World Series game. I am one of those fans that I get hurt and I'm done. Like maybe I'm a spoiled fan now as, a, as you know, having tasted success, but like, I don't want to watch the world series if the Astros aren't in it these last seven years. It is what it is. I watched a little piece of game two. And maybe if I had watched a little bit more of the diamondbacks had done better. Cause you know, that was the only game that they won. And I only watched maybe an inning or two of it because I was in a sports bar and that was what was on the TV. Yeah. I mean, I, I watched a lot of Rockets basketball. Sometimes I felt like I was forcing myself to watch the Rockets game. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm paying for Fubo just so I can watch the Rockets up here. I might as well use it. Exactly. All right, Tim. Um, it has been another great episode, if we do say so ourselves. Um, and I know you've kind of hit a bump in the log with your uh, with your Twitter X. But, you know, where can the people find you? I'm back. Days? No, I'm back, baby. It was a short ban. I did get did get a little suspension for suggesting that um, someone insert something that was spiked into an orifice that Twitter didn't like, which I find ridiculous, Scott, because Nazis could go out there and say some outrageous shit. But I, I tell someone to stick something up there, you know what? Um, you know, my wife didn't love the comment, but it is what it is. You can find me at Tim underscore Costello 10 on Twitter. Uh, and you can find the show um, on Facebook at the Snap Hook podcast. Yeah, what bugs me about that is that I don't know if you've it keeps switching me back to for you instead of who I actually follow. And so it gives me right wing stuff in my box. And it's like all the time. You're just trying to make me angry at this point. That's what you're trying to do. I've started muting a lot of those people. And so now I just get, I get an unbelievable amount of golf stuff in my Twitter news line now. Like it is 85% golf. I'm at S Barzilla at really all the major sites. Um, I, I am still writing for battle red blog for Houston Texans. And you know, my, my Substack still going strong. Uh, thoughts from a native Texan. I'm uh, still, you know, trying to efforting to get Tim, you know, his own little, you know, side page on there. But uh, that, that might be a New Year's resolution, Scott, yeah, is yeah. To, to do one article a week with you. Um, but I, I'm uh, throwing my Hall of Fame index stuff in there on its own separate page. So, so those of y'all who say I've had enough about politics, I respect that. Take a look at the Hall of Fame index. No politics on that on that little subsect. So, go ahead and uh, and enjoy. But you know, it's been a great Wednesday night here after Halloween. Uh, a lot of leftover candy, which Tim and I, of course, ranked our candies there at the beginning. So, hopefully, y'all have some leftover candy uh, that y'all can enjoy as well. And uh, going straight for Thanksgiving is the next holiday right around the corner. Yeah, we'll be we'll be looking forward to it. Already looking up my my turkey recipes now, and um, you know we'll be back strong next week. We'll have a little bit more of the index stuff and and a little bit more Texans chatter too as as we uh, roll full on into no baseball now for like four months. So that sucks, but we'll be back soon, and we'll be back better than ever next week on the Snap Hook.
Thank you for tuning into the Stat Book and making Scott and I a part of your week. I wanted to recognize that our intro song is called Energetic Indie Rock by Alex Grohl, and this outro music is Good Vibe by Twisterium. We appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the Snap Hook movement. We look forward to seeing you next week on the Snap Hook.